always safe. <laughs> the first story of the second half will be PTSD, part-timer, still down, by Caroline Green, who will be read by Tony Bell. Caroline worked for many years as a non-fiction editor and writer before giving it all up for the theatre and becoming a fundraiser at Shakespeare's Globe. Her writing has appeared in the Fish Anthology and in Flash magazine. This is her first story for Lies Lee. Tony is an Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons. He has performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company, Propeller. Playing Bottom, Feste, Autoculus, Autolicus, Autolicus, and Trania. TV. <laughs> TV includes Coronation Street, Holby City, Midsummer's Notice, East Enders, and The Bill. He is also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony. Part-time is still down, A Soldier's Tale by Caroline Green. Alone and not alone is partly what it's like. You're grateful for solitude and yet you dread it. Like today, my wife went out, took the kids, took them somewhere to the park, I think she said, or it could have been the pictures. Sometimes I find it hard to follow. Well, that's not new, she'll probably say. So, I was alone but alert straight away. I have to watch for it, you see, this thing that stalks the ramparts. I'm my own valon man, searching the ground, the air, for the thing that could ambush me, floor me, scatter me at any time. A phantom condition, I heard that said the other day. And there was this headline in the paper, government expert denies post-traumatic stress crisis in veterans. That said it all right there. Acknowledged and dismissed in the same breath shifting realities, which in fact is the nature of the thing itself. The site says I'm on the road to recovery. I asked him where I could find recovery on the map. Is it anywhere between bull and shit? I wanted to ask. Just give me the coordinates, I'll be right there. I don't think he has any idea. I've tried to tell him, but I can't. If anything, it's a kind of double vision. People talk about panic, about feeling sick and dizzy at the same time, but there's this other thing that happens in quick little gasps through your body. It hardly seems worth mentioning because you know the people around you won't have seen it, they won't have felt it, even though it's there. Real as the faintest shudder of an earthquake or the blurring of a lens. When it happens, I feel as though I have a sense that I can see the atoms in a solid object. And I can see them shift slightly, so that they rearrange themselves into a different, more vicious thing. To counteract it, I searched the internet. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, <laughs> but I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for, you'll think this is daft, but I'm looking for the joyful things. For cats that dance, dogs that sing, and parrots that ride skateboards. And that's how I discover this video of bears. All you see at the start of it is a big industrial rubbish bin at the edge of a pine wood. 
And there's a large bear pacing around it, around and around, distressed, threatening, hungry, you can't tell. Suddenly the bear runs off and out from the edge of shot, a pickup truck arrives. A guy in the back throws a ladder into the bin. I guess they don't need that old thing anymore, I think. But the camera stays on the bin with the ladder poking out. This is pretty dull, you decide, and then you suspect that something else might happen because the camera carries on recording. Then up out of the bin pops a head, <coughs> the head of a bear cub. And the cub climbs up out, out of that refuse bin, and another one follows, and then another, and then the big bear comes back, it's the mother, and they all run off into the wood. <laughs> you have to smile. That's a great story. I've played it over a few times. Maybe more than a few. And so I'm here, I'm at home waiting for the all clear. Rather, I'm waiting to be all clear. I help out around the house when I can, and today seemed a good day to hang out some washing. So I carried the basket out to the washing line, I shook out the clothes and the linen, got started, then I dropped the bloody peg back. Only that. But the bag plops open and the pegs scatter with a crackle and out of the corner of my eye I see the shed. The ordinary oblong shed with a window and a pent roof and a coating of creosote. I see the shed shift, rearrange itself into a low building with a flat roof and a black gap in the wall. Shapes are moving in the gap and I can feel with absolute certainty the potential for disintegration held tight within those walls. This will pass, I tell myself, so I breathe in and out. But this is worse than usual. Come on, I say. Once more onto the breach and all those cliches. Breathe, breathe. Think of the bears. Think of the cubs. And I, I start to wonder, who would have filmed that thing? Who knew they were there? Who thought of the ladder? And then it comes to me clear as crystal. That was us in Afghan. We threw the ladder in. We helped them, didn't we? Territorials, that's what we do. We train for this. Back up and stabilisation. Hurrah for Harry, England and St George! Isn't that how it goes? And in my mind, I follow the road in the video. But the road in the video doesn't lead into the pine woods. It stretches out into a dusty track with reeds on either side. The nearby, a couple of gardens away, a lawnmower kicks into action. And there's the rumble of wheels on stones. There's the dust in my eyes, my helmet's buzzing. A bird flaps out of the reeds. Something moves beyond the mud walls of the compound. Or rather the, 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 the shed, the shed with the ladder in it. Our ladder to save the bears. And there are cubs running towards me and calling me name. And I must stop them before they step on those things on the ground, before they're blown to pieces, and I scream at them, the cubs, the children, my children, to save them. Stay there. Stay where you are. Don't even think about it. Don't fucking touch me. And my kids stop in their tracks, looking down at this man, sprawled on the ground amongst the clothes pegs. They are as white as the sheets flapping in the line. They stare and stare at me as if they have never seen me before. As if they are looking at a ghost.
our fifth story tonight will be History Lessons by Joanna Aristida. Read and be read by Sarah Feathers. Joanna has studied creative writing with John Pepperbridge at City Lit and is working on a collection of short stories and a novel. Her story, Venom, will be included in the 2014 Fish Anthology to be published in July. When not officially writing fiction, she's an economist. Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders, and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky, and More Than Words. TV includes The Real King Herod. Sarah. History Lessons by Oana Aristide. Who knows how children get such mad ideas? Some blame the tree. The old twisted oak glowering down on Gigi's village was just like the oak in the schoolmaster's tale. Proud and large, overlooking the plains, visible from afar. Dark brown furrowed bark. One low fat branch sliding westwards on the sparse grass, giving the oak purchase against centuries of nipping eastern winds. On rain-heavy warm mornings, the children of the village watch the trees' bare, knotty branches ride in the fog, stealthily alive. There, oak, ready to bring wooden maces down on invaders' soft heads. The schoolmaster came to their village once a week and taught the children in one of the cottages left empty by the wall. Frail, watery-eyed Master Lepescu was their third schoolmaster in less than a year. <clears throat> Between the end of the war and the beginning of collectivization, teachers often said the wrong things. The last schoolmaster had spoken to them about peasants from neighbouring villages happily signing away their land to the commune and had been dragged off one night. Gigi found a blooded footcloth in the brambles outside the teacher's cottage. So, <coughs> Master Lepescu, dabbing at his runny eyes, told them old stories and legends. In this particular tale, one day, 500 years ago, children just like them had hanged a boy in play from a giant oak. They were still playing when the hanging boy saw the black swarm in the distance. He recognised the enemy's red and yellow flags and called out, The Turks! The children scattered to warn the village, leaving him behind. The boy wriggled and squirmed, but he couldn't slip out of the rope. And the Turks, they didn't even bother to spur their horses up the hill. They just used him for target practice. For a little hanging boy, the brave Ottoman army darkened the sky with arrows. 
by the time Master Lepescu had fallen silent. The children had tears in their eyes too. They must have all thought of the same thing, of the big oak at the top of the hill, where each autumn they took the pigs to feed on acorns, because no one spoke up to say, let's go to the oak. And yet they all went. There was a restlessness in them, an urge to sneak inside the tail and touch that long-ago boy and that howling injustice. Eight boys ran up the hill to the oak, and one ran back down to fetch the rope. Rope from where? Thin, sandy-head Mishu said sullenly. The tallest boy, Radi, grabbed his arm and pushed him down, down the hill. The barns! The haycart rope! He shouted after him. They stood in silence under the oak, their eyes following Mishu down the hill and into the first barn. Gigi, the youngest of them, already knew that he would be the one to hang. Among boys taught by war and famine to be skittish like rabbits, shifty-eyed and sly, Gigi was quiet and serious. He too had crawled in the dirt under barn fences, sneaking into steel walnuts or apples, but he never bolted at the first noise. The story called for a boy who could act like a man. There must be no whining. Michu ran out of the barn, a large coil of rope on his shoulder. They watched him struggle up the hill, fall, get up, and run again on all fours. To the boy standing there, it was easy to think of the 500 years that had passed as a trifle. They knew war well enough. The oldest of them had stood on this hill and, like the hung boy, had seen approaching armies. They were as poor and hungry as the boys 500 years ago. Snotty-nosed, barefoot more often than not, their patched trousers held up with strings of sackcloth. They had been taught the same lessons about how to cheat hunger. The boys remembered shivering pale strangers with deep socketed eyes who had climbed up the hill during the war and eaten acorns. Remembered how the starving strangers then threw up blood, begrudgingly, reluctantly, their eyes small and bilious at the sight of having to give up yet more of themselves. Children from around here would never eat acorns. Bent double and panting, Mishu let the heavy coil fall to the ground in front of the others. No one moved. When finally Radu picked it up, he looked at the greasy, tallow-smelling flax, then at the tree. Master Lepescu had said nothing about the hanging itself. To the schoolmaster, hanging a boy in play, could only have meant hanging someone from their shoulders as in a harness. Radu swung one end of the rope over a branch. It fell through the leaves with a snaky rustle. He turned to the other boys. Gigi took a step forwards. Realising how rigid the rope was, 
and how difficult to twist it into a knot. The tall boy added more and more rope to the loop around Gigi's neck. The first knot he tied was as loose as the elbowy knot one makes with one's arms. Gigi had put his hands inside the coil below his jaw to keep it from choking him. Behind him, Radu made a second knot and pulled at the rope with all his force to tighten it. Gigi reeled as Radu tugged at the rope. Hey, I've got to return that or my uncle will kill me, Meshu said. Ignoring him, Radu pulled at the last knot until he was satisfied that it would hold. Gigi still stood there with his fingers inside the rope collar. Radu slapped Gigi's hands away. He then grabbed Mishu and said, You, stand leapfrog. Here. Mishu bent down in front of them, and Gigi climbed up on his back. The rope around Gigi's neck was heavy, but he got up, his toes frog-like, spread wide for balance on Mishu's bony back. Once Gigi was upright, Radu pulled at the other end of the rope until there was hardly any slack. He threw the rope up again and let it make three rings around the branch. For a moment, he swung on the rope. It held him. At Gigi's end, there was only a metre or so of stiff rope between his neck and the branch. Radu stepped back from the two joining the half-circle of boys who had been watching. When I say go, Mishu, you go. We only hang him for a short while. Then I'll grab his legs. Boy can hold his breath that long. Gigi nodded. He didn't know what to do with his hands. He still wanted to put his hands inside the rope, but that would be cowardly. His right hand tugged nervously at the side of his trousers. Go! Radu shouted, and Mishu ducked away from under Gigi's feet. The boys were quiet. They watched Gigi kick out in a spasm once, and then fall still. He wasn't looking at them, and his head was caught in a loop at an odd angle. Some of the boys craned their necks to look past the oak into the distance at the scattered flock of sheep that was not turning into the Sultan's army. Radu felt uneasy. He had meant to count to fifty, but at thirty he was already holding up Gigi's legs. Gigi still wasn't moving. Abruptly, one of the boys turned and ran down the hill. Others followed. At the foot of the hill, they met their parents, wailing, cursing, rushing to the oak. Thank you, Sarah. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. Some of you may have noticed the absence of our illustrious leader, Katie. 
That's because she's nine and a half months pregnant. <laughs> so she's running a bit late as well. When the newborn arrives, we're very much hoping it's going to be called William. <laughs> Especially if it's a girl. The liars will return on the 13th of May, with beginning and end. Submissions are closed, but you may, might like to try your hand at weird and wonderful. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are on the Liars website. And so, our final story of the evening will be Romero and Juliet by Liam Hogan, <laughs> read by Robert Gwell. Liam Hogan, it says here, <laughs> is an internationally performed, <laughs> having been read at each of the Lies League, New York, Hong Kong, London, Leicester, and Leeds. He's written about, it says here, he's written about vampires, aliens, and talking rats, and done more deals with the devil than is healthy. Despite all of this, this is a first, and probably last. Robert is a drama centre graduate who has played the title role in Orestes, Orestes, at the school, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, slight difference, at the Dell, and Demetrius in A Midsummer's Night Dream at Middle Temple. Short film credits include Cygnus, which has been accepted into the Cannes Short Film Corner. Robert. Romero and Juliet by Liam Hogan. Don't get me wrong. I knew the risks. We all did. Sure, like everyone else, I never thought it would be me. Right up until the moment it was. And certainly not in such a goddamn dumbass comedy of terror's way. If this is to be warts and all, I should admit that I wasn't originally a fan of the genre. It's hardly something that befits someone with a degree in English literature, <laughs> even if it is only from community college. Financially, I could see the merits. But before me, it was just a few poorly lit, shakily held, brutish, and downright nasty YouTube clips. Not that mine aren't brutish and nasty when the story calls for it, which is often. But I'd be very disappointed if you thought they were poorly lit. I might have to brain you with one of my two zaffers. Joking. I do wonder who exactly I'm talking to here. I mean, I'm not talking to those two. Not the actress whose brains are decorating the far wall, nor her crippled girlfriend propped up at the exit. If things had worked out differently, I'd be talking to my assistant AD, Claudia, who'd be winking back at me from behind the camera as it is, she's indisposed. I guess I'm talking to whoever stumbles across this footage. I'm hoping you'll have the wits to piece it all together. Maybe put it out as a making of documentary or director's comments or something. In which case, I'm also talking to a much wider audience, assuming they ever get past the main feature. My first and only starring role. Maybe I'd better backtrack. Some of you might not even know what a Zaffa is. Ever seen two zombies having sex? 
you have to make sure they're both well fed, which is ethically dubious at best. And it helps if you dose them meal with Viagra. But once you do, it's pure paywall gold. George A. Romero, zombies don't fuck. The question is, why not? Sex is primitive, base urge. You don't need to be able to hold a conversation or know how to handle a knife and fork. All you need is a guy zombie and a girl zombie with their rotting brains not entirely focused on food. I guess that's why Romero zombies don't fuck. They're always hungry. And they're fictional, of course. On film, they're too busy chasing the few remaining bits of live flesh. No chance to sit, scratch at their wounds, and turn brain mush to more romantic thoughts. I wasn't the first to make zombie porn. <laughs> and despite this cautionary tale, I won't be the last. But I reckon I was, and still am, the best. And those two adult film awards, zombie category, or Zaphis, back me up. I had high hopes of a third, but uh, things have gone a little off book. So this, this is my improvised and final gift to you, my sick and perverted audience. But someone else will have to be doing the post-production editing. My first Zaffa was for Romero and Juliet. I guess the thing about Romero zombies not fucking had been on my mind a while. Sometimes I wish I'd been a little less clever clever with a name, though. What's in a name, you may, may well ask? But it's not Schindler's Fist, is it? <laughs> or poke a hot ass. Or even clitty clitty bang bang. And it's definitely not shaving Ryan's privates. <laughs> Romero and Juliet is just a tad too subtle. The sort of thing you might pick up and not even notice the change spell. The sort of thing my grandma might pick up when she saw my director's credit on the cover. She has not spoken to me since. <laughs> but then a stroke will do that to you. <laughs> So anyway, Romero and Juliet. It was an uncomplicated thing. A mere 37 minutes long, three cameras, two zombies, one blood-smeared balcony scene. But it set a new standard, without which there probably wouldn't even be a zombie adult film award. It's all about quality. Mm -hmm. Proper sets, proper light, candles. A four-poster bed, silk sheets, not actual silk. Anything that look like, looks like silk will do. But remember, you're going to want to burn them. You're going to want to burn the whole damn set. Now, picture a zombie chick in a nightgown lounging on that four-poster. It's best to find a girl Z already in her nightgown, because trying to dress a zombie, well, that's a whole different genre of snuffling, and one with an even shorter life expectancy for the director. It also helps if the girl is quite obviously a girl. Sometimes, depending on the state of decomposition, it can be kind of hard to tell. 
So for the more mainstream of audiences, if there is such a thing with zombie porn, <laughs> choose one with long hair and big tits, and your casting work is done. You might think I'm relaying this kind of calmly, given the circumstances, given the outrageous fortune that has led me here. My calm is of the bottled pharmaceutical variety, and I'd not be able to record these last mortal thoughts without its assistance. I did, I admit, initially panic when the supposedly bulletproof glass shattered, but it didn't take long to realize how this would all turn out. There were never more than a couple of outcomes, really. And in both of them, I don't live long enough for the drugs to even wear off. <laughs> My second zapper was for Macdeath. <laughs> and for anyone who's just starting off in the industry, the plural of Zappa is, fuck yes, I have two awards, <laughs> as I'm the only one who does. It's my name that gets Project Greenlit, which brings me neatly back to my comatose assistant, Claudia. She worked with me at the tail end of the budget production of Tits and Gronicus, my, <laughs> yeah. My usual AD had to be replaced halfway through the shoot, torn limb from limb during the zombie orgy scene while trying to write a toppled camera. His own dumb fault. <laughs> well fed my ass. At least I gave him an acting credit. Not that he was acting. When Claudia said she had an idea for my next film, I was happy to listen. She said she'd already done the groundwork, scoped out the location, sourced props, even knew where she could get hold of the two zombie actors required. The two girl zombie actors required. That made me pause. I mean, for starters, where was she going to get lesbian zombies from? How was she even going to know they were lesbians? But I didn't kick up too much of a fuss. If it tanked, I just pulled my name from the project, which, depending on how the filming went, was either going to be called the Taming of the Screw, or a Midsummer Night's Scream. The setup looked okay. Cameras already in place, a big panoramic window for us to film through. At first, it was much ado about nothing. The two girl Z's just lurched around the room, ignoring the couch, the bed, the various medieval-looking dildos. I shot Claudia. Why did I tell you? Look. But she just shrugged. Give it time, she said. And then, one of them fell onto the bed, tits up, and lay there flapping her limbs like a, a beetle on its back. We might have survived if I didn't have my pants around my ankles at the time. Oh, excuse me, my page is slipping. <laughs> I better go back a lot. Oh my god, don't tell me I put that, no. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, flapping there like a, a beetle on its back, that's what it was. We might have survived, I was in the right place the whole time. <laughs> so, we might have survived if I hadn't had my pants around my ankles at the time. And with them, my 9mm semi-auto. I still got to it before they got to us, but only just. No, I've got, oh man, I know what I've done. I put the pages on the wrong way around. That's so annoying. Right, I'm gonna go back. And then one of them fell onto the bed, tits up, and lay there flapping, flapping her limbs in the air like a beetle on its back. This 
is the thing about zombie apocalypse. Another difference between reality and Romero zombies are brain dead. Like, totally fucking brain dead. They starve the way to nothingness unless food happens to wander within a couple of uncoordinated steps of them. This is why most of the outbreaks were so easily controlled. Why the lights are still burning, factories still running, internet still up, porn industry still filming. Hardly the sort of apocalypse this has us reinventing slings and arrows. More people died in the stampedes than actually got bit by zombies. There are still flare-ups, of course, but generally speaking, good hygiene, interval training, and a decent handgun should see you safely through. Unless, of course, you go looking for them. Unless, of course, you decide to film them having sex. Anyway, back on set, the ineffectually struggling girl Z had attracted the attention of the other one who'd stuck banging her head against the wall long enough to swivel it in the direction of the bed. Clambering onto it, she nosed her way towards the prone figure until they were in the 69 position and then went to work. Color me surprised. Color me fucking amazed. Until I realized that if I were to tell you they were eating each other out, this wouldn't be a euphemism. <laughs> My heart sank. Then I felt a hot breath against my neck and a gentle, soft pressure against my back. It was Claudia, her pupils wide and her cheeks aflush. So what if the zombies were munching rather than licking? It all came down to what it looked like they were doing. And it was obviously working its icky magic on my bisexual AD. I tweaked the remotes to make sure the close-ups didn't give the game away and turned to give Claudia my full attention. So I couldn't really tell you when zombies gave up doing what they were doing and decided to go looking for fresh meat instead. Maybe I gave them too much credit. They may have simply got bored and gone back to banging their heads against the wall, against the supposedly bulletproof glass. Three times is all they knocked. I know that from the coitus interrupting noise. And then it splintered. Then it shattered, showering us with shards. We might have survived if I didn't have my pants around my ankles at the time. <laughs> and with them, my 9mm semi-auto. I still got to it before they got to us, but only just. Blew one of them away as the other seized hold of my arm. Didn't have enough in the clip to do more than cripple her, but by then, it was too late. Ragged teeth marks oozing blood on my wrist. A pale echo of Claudia's torn out throat. I didn't even see that happen. Didn't see the fatal blow. I placed the reloaded gun into the gaping wound, angling it up towards her brain. But I couldn't. I just couldn't pull the trigger. And what right do I have to decide whether being dead is better than just being undead? Zombie or not zombie? That is the question. Instead, I got busy. Lay Claudia's twitching body on the bed. Propped the still struggling girl Z up against the door to stop any unwanted interruptions. I can feel the poison burning up my arm now, up to my shoulder. Hasn't got much further to go. Blissfully, the rest of me is going numb, except for down below, where it appears the handful of little blue pills has started to kick in. Time to wrap up. Time to stumble over and join Claudia, where the lights still blaze and the cameras still point. Like I said, there were only ever two outcomes. 
will Claudia revive hungry or horny? If she's peckish, that'll be the end of me. The freshest meat in the room, and this will be a short. If she's patient and waits for me to revive, then perhaps we'll get to finish what we started earlier, and you're in for a rare televisual treat, the perfect zombie couple. As far as it can go on a, as far as it can possibly go on a fucked up day like today, all's well that ends well. <laughs> Fading fast now. The things I do for you guys, still, it's better than shooting myself in the head. I guess. Lights, camera, and action! Good night. Good night.